0: Hey listeners, this is Ben, the amateur exegete, and you're listening to episode 38 of Bible Study for Amateurs. Today's episode is A Clever Way to Date Chronicles. Though often considered to be part of the most boring sections of the Bible, the genealogies found in the first nine chapters of First Chronicles contain interesting tidbits that color how we view other seemingly unrelated issues. For example, in a piece for his blog Biblical Historical Context, Nat Rittmeier points out that an anecdote in 1 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 21-23 through 23, about the death of two of Ephraim's sons and the birth of another effectively contradicts what we are told about Ephraim and the Exodus in other texts. For starters, when Ephraim's son Ezer and Eliad die, the text tells us that His brothers came to comfort him, but we know from the book of Genesis that Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. That means Ephraim had one brother, not many. Another oddity is where Ephraim's children are from, somewhere north of Gath. Verse 21 claims that the people of Gath killed Ephraim's sons because the pair came down to raid their cattle. As Rittmeyer points out, if they went down to Gath, then they didn't come up from Egypt. In all likelihood, they came from the hill country of Canaan, making the wording, came down to raid their cattle, perfect topographic sense. Another quirk in this section is what Ephraim's daughter She'era does. Perverse verse 23, she's the builder of Lower and Upper Beth Horon, a location in Canaan not Egypt. In Ritmeyer's words, this isn't at all what we'd expect from someone living in Goshen, hundreds of miles from the Ephraimite hills. But this isn't all. With Ephraim and his descendants already, you know what? Check out the show notes and you'll find Ritmeyer's post that you can read for yourself. He's a very detailed and thorough writer with a wealth of knowledge about archaeology, history, and the Hebrew Bible. The genealogies of First Chronicles can serve another function unrelated to their literary purpose. They can clue us in on when the work was written. When scholars attempt to date a text, they look for two different pieces of data. The first is what is sometimes referred to as the terminus quem, the date after which it must have been written. The second is the Terminus Antiquem, the date before which it must have appeared. If you read a book that was missing its copyright page, but you read a line in it that said something about President Ronald Reagan, then you know from other data that whenever the book was written, it could not have appeared any earlier than the early 1980s. That would be the Terminus Postquem since the book could not have appeared any earlier than that time. We can do something similar with First Chronicles. In First Chronicles chapter three, we find the lineage of David. Beginning in verse ten, the focus shifts to David's son Solomon, and lists his descendants all the way down to his great 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 grandson. I think I counted that right. Josiah. Josiah is pretty important in both the work of the chronicler and one of his sources, the Deuteronomistic History. That's a subject for another time. What matters here is the lineage from Josiah onward. Per verses 15 through 24, it goes like this. Josiah, Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, Pedaiah, Zerubbabel, Hananiah, Shekhaniah, Shemaiah, Ne'ariah, Elionai, and finally, Hodaviah. It is this sequence that gives us our terminus post-Quem, since Hodaviah, the last name on the list, probably lived in the late 5th century BCE, around 420 or so. This means that 1 Chronicles could not have been written before that point in time. What about the second piece needed to date a work, the Terminus Antiquem? A fragment of four words of First Chronicles was found at Qumran and can be dated to the 1st century BCE. But that can't be the Terminus Antiquem, since other Second Temple period texts allude to, quote from, or just copy 1 Chronicles. For example, 1 Esdras lifts directly from 2 Chronicles chapters 35 and 36, If, as many scholars believe, 1st Esdras is a work from the 2nd century BCE, then chronicles must have been written by this time. The 2nd century BCE, then, is a potential terminus antiquem. There's another reason to think that the 2nd century may have been the era in which the chronicler wrote. In an article for the Journal of Biblical Literature, entitled the historical reality behind the genealogical lists in 1 Chronicles, Israel Finkelstein, a professor at Tel Aviv University and the author of numerous articles and books, including his popular The Bible Unearthed that he co-wrote with Neil Silberman, considers evidence based on toponymic data within 1 Chronicles chapters 2 through 9 that points to a date in the 2nd century BCE. He first looks at the archaeological data for various sites in the regions associated with the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, Asher, and Reuben. These cities and towns, mentioned in the genealogies by the chronicler, were active primarily in two periods, Iron Age II and Hellenistic. During the Persian period, many of these sites have little to no data. Finkelstein writes, If one sees the genealogical lists as representing a true settlement system, and is therefore looking for a single period reality behind them, it seems clear that the Persian period is not an option. If not that period, then when? Finkelstein is able to immediately rule out Iron Age II for a few reasons there's territory controlled by the kingdom of Judah that is not mentioned in the genealogy, something unexpected if it was created during that period, and there are areas in the list that, in his words, were never under Judahite domination. As already stated, based on the archaeology of cities and towns alone, Finkelstein rules out the Persian period, but he gives a fuller discussion of the possibility in what follows. When Babylon controlled Judah during the exilic period, it became part of a region known as Yehud. When the Persians took over, they referred to it as Yehud Medinata. It was during this time, per biblical texts, that Ezra and Nehemiah lived. Finkelstein notes that some scholars think the Chronicler was writing during this period. To construct the borders of Yehud, where Ezra and Nehemiah worked and the Chronicler wrote, they use two pieces of data. The geographical lists of Ezra and Nehemiah, especially Nehemiah chapter three, and the distribution of Persian period seal impressions. But Finkelstein doesn't think these data points lead to the conclusion other scholars think that they do. For starters, he contends that Nehemiah chapter three cannot serve as a basis for reconstructing the borders of Yehud in the Persian period. For example, In Nehemiah chapter 3, we find a description of Jerusalem as a large, robust city, complete with a wall. But, Finkelstein writes, Persian period Jerusalem was an unfortified village that extends over a very limited area in the central part of the city of David. And that's not all. The area of Beth-zur, mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 16, seems to have been active primarily in Iron Age 2 and the Hellenistic period, but only minimally in the Persian. Something similar can be said of Gibeon, mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 7. There is no evidence of Persian period pottery or Yehud seal impressions, but there are examples of Hellenistic pottery and coins. Finally, Finkelstein writes that the distribution of Persian period Yehud seal impressions extant does not match the territory Nehemiah 3 describes. It seems unlikely, then, that the core of the genealogical lists written by the chronicler fits in the Persian period. Nehemiah chapter 3 seems to be describing a situation that is either ideal or was written after the fact and inserted into the text of Nehemiah at a later date, it thus cannot serve as a basis upon which to date the work of the Chronicler. Toward the end of the piece, Toward the end of his piece, Finkelstein presents the historical context that he finds to be the most compelling for the Chronicler, the Hasmonean state of the mid-2nd century BCE. It was during this period that Judean leaders began to expand their territory. This expansion, per Finkelstein, was seen as a legitimate reconquest of the territory of biblical Israel. During the days of John Hyrcanus, a Jewish commander of Maccabean military forces, this territorial expansion itself expanded, and Finkelstein observes that the distribution of places in the core area of the genealogical lists fits the days of John Hyrcanus. Thus, it likely belongs to the second half of the 2nd century BCE. And why did the chronicler include these lists? In short, per Finkelstein, to legitimize Jewish rule over this area, part of which was inhabited by a large Gentile population, by giving it an ancient Israelite tribal pedigree. Finkelstein has a lot more to say throughout his article. Time doesn't permit a more in-depth look here. I've tried to hit some of the highlights. And it should be noted that it could very well be that the chronicler wrote the bulk of his work in the Persian period and the genealogies, written in the 2nd century, were added on. Whatever the case may be, This does show that dating biblical texts isn't always straightforward, and we sometimes need to draw upon a variety of evidence to arrive at a possible conclusion. And honestly, this is what makes biblical studies so fun. That's all the time we've got this week. See you next time. And remember, in the words of Richard Elliott Friedman, one does not need to deny what is troubling about the Bible in order to pay respect to what is heartening.